Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, the naked scientists hit the dance floor as we look at the science behind the boogie. What makes someone a good dancer? Why do we do it? And how can we use it to help people? And in the news, how glowing lungs could help fight hospital infections, the future of the internet and an app to help people with OCD. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Georgia Mills and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First in the news, around the world, about 20 million people need a ventilator to breathe. Ventilator patients are some of the most critically ill, and they're particularly vulnerable to picking up lung infections like pneumonia. But because time is so short for these patients, doctors don't really have enough time to properly diagnose the infection, which can take days, so they end up being given lots of emergency antibiotics. As well as using up resources, this adds to the already significant global problem of antibiotic resistance. Now, scientists have developed a new way of rapidly seeing bacteria in patients' lungs at hospital bedside, which they hope could be used to confirm a suspected diagnosis within seconds and also monitor the progress of treatments. Clinician and researcher Kev Daliwal from the University of Edinburgh took part in the research and he spoke to Casey Haler. One of the biggest challenges faced by humanity at the moment is the rise of antimicrobial resistance and the lack of antibiotics we have in the pipeline. We need to better steward what we have currently, but also to make sure we're giving the right class of antibiotics to the patients, otherwise we drive resistance. And in some scenarios, such as in intensive care or very sick patients, we give very broad-spectrum antibiotics. We need to stop antibiotics that we don't need to give because there are many side effects and also it drives resistance. So the idea here was to develop a bedside technology that could give us the results within seconds. Can you walk us through your new technique? You can call them molecular light bulbs or fluorescent smarties. They're chemicals that will bind to targets, then light up when they bind to target. We spray them into the area we're interested in, then we pass a small microscope and look for this light, and that's what we're seeing. So the paper and the work we describe is the ability to spray these smart probes, as we call them, or these molecular light bulbs in. They hit the target and they light up and we actually take the detector right into the distal part of the lung. So you've got a molecule which is capable of emitting a light signal, and that's, what, bound to something that reacts to the bacteria? Yeah, the core technology was around an antibiotic that we modified that only binds to certain types of bacteria, that we then put this fluorophore on, and then it only lit it when it touch that bacteria so the the fluorophore embeds itself into the membrane of a bacteria and the membrane of bacteria have got different environments that can make the fluorophore light up from zero to high levels. So what information do you end up with then at the bedside? 
we start seeing clumps of bacteria sparkling in front of us. And one of the biggest challenges we have to do now is to understand whether that is just bacteria that were there already and what levels there were, or is this real infection? So what we're trying to do in studies moving forwards is now take this out to many more patients now that we've proven we can see the bacteria in the lung. And in the small series that we've done, we think that indicates real new infection to validate that in hundreds of people to show that we can actually definitively diagnose this condition, pneumonia, within 60 seconds on the on the ventilator. We also have other molecular light bulbs that pick up other signatures of infection, so inflammatory cells, for instance. So we'd like to think of this as a bit like a rainbow. Green is the, the light we see with the bacteria, but we can also pick up red, magenta, and other signals when we put other smart probes in. So what we're about to do now is take this to the next level. We're going to actually spray in a combination of these probes that pick up both inflammation, which is the host's or the human's response to infection, and the bacteria to give us this unique signature of these aren't just bacteria that are sitting there, these are bacteria that are actually causing nasty damage. We have developed now probes that tell us the class of bacteria. That can direct the type of antibiotic we give. So what we're moving towards is actually the ability for these smart probes also be able to tell us that the bacteria are alive or dead. Now, that wasn't part of this study that we published, but that's where we're moving to, the ability to show that antibiotics are actually working. Because often we give antibiotics and we don't know the dose that we're giving is correct in these patients. And we're not entirely sure whether they penetrate the tissue to kill the bacteria. So monitoring treatment efficacy is a key goal. Can you give us an indication of how significant this new technique could be? We've spent many years and decades as scientists using animal models or things in dishes and thinking we know what's going on inside human beings. We've never been able to actually see real bacteria, real infection in humans before at the bedside in patients who are acutely unwell. But the ability now to do molecular microscopy inside human beings, we can actually understand disease processes. So I think from our perspective, we're excited because this is the beginning of that journey. Some very exciting work. Kev Daliwal there speaking to Katie Haler and the paper was just published in Science Translational Medicine. Now, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder is a condition affecting just over one in a hundred people, which can cause ritualised behaviours like repeated hand washing or a fear of contamination. The behaviours can have a serious impact on people's work, their mental health and their relationships. Well, now a team from the University of Cambridge have designed an app for patients with OCD and early studies have shown it can help improve symptoms. To tell us more, we're joined by Professor Barbara Sahakian. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. Can you tell us a bit more about OCD? Yeah, so although some people sort of trivialise it because, you know, they think, oh, hand-washing, that's not too bad. I mean, the point is that some of these people are so severe in terms of their symptoms of contamination fears that they actually pour bleach on their hands or even sometimes they can't even leave the house because they're so concerned that touching anything in a public place might contaminate them in some way. So it's a very serious illness. So what kind of therapies do exist at the moment? Well, at the moment, the most common one is a form of cognitive behavioural therapy, and it's called exposure and response prevention. So it's a very special form. And what happens is maybe a psychologist or somebody helps them go through the treatment where when they have contamination fears, they have to, say, touch a toilet seat or maybe even put their hands down a toilet, and then they're prevented from washing their hands. So initially, they get very anxious, as you might expect, 
but slowly they habituate and the exposure to this uh, makes them essentially become unafraid and, and they lose the contamination fear. But many patients don't want to go through this treatment because it so, makes them so worried and anxious. And is this what inspired you? Why did you set out to design this app? Yeah, so we set out to design the app because um, the two treatments that there are, the cognitive behavioral therapy or the drugs, which are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs like Prozac, only about you know 60% of patients respond to that. So there's about 40% that get no relief from the treatments. So what we've done is we've got these apps. One is a, an app where you see yourself washing your hands, and the other app is where you see yourself touching these sort of disgusting objects, which obviously are related to contamination fears. And what we found is if people do this four times a day for a week, they actually get much better in terms of their symptoms. Their symptoms are greatly reduced. And also we find that they become more cognitively flexible because basically cognitive rigidity is associated with carrying out these rituals, these habits and so forth. And what do you mean when you say cognitive flexibility? Well, sort of being very adaptive to things and sort of being able to switch to think of new things and not get stuck in these ritualistic behaviours. Right. And so you mentioned there's a video on the app of them washing their hands. So could you talk me through how someone using the app, when they'd use it and how they'd use it? Yeah, so they'd ask to use it four times a day and they're, and they're sort of keyed when to use it. Um, they have a, a window of opportunity to use it. And so they touch whether they're feeling well and how they're feeling and they rate their anxiety levels at that point. And then they watch the app and we also put circles on the app, which they have to recognize and count so that we're sure that they're actually looking at the app. And they've been very accurate about that. So we know that they watch the app when it comes on. And then afterwards, they rate again how anxious they are. And we've had really good reports back. Some of the people say, I didn't used to be able to go on the bus because I didn't want to touch anything and sit on seats that people have been sitting on. But now I find that I can just look at my app and see myself washing my hands and I feel much better. And other people who had the other one that's more akin to a CBT type therapy say that um, I used to not be able to wash the counter or take my bins out, but now I find that I don't really have a problem with that. And so they both seem to reduce the symptoms by about 21%, which is great. Right. So as whereas a cognitive behavioral therapy, you can't really carry that around with you in your pocket, but with an app, it's there for when you need it. Yes. And it's really personalized medicine because it's their own hands that they're watching wash or touch these objects. So our paper was recently published in the journal Scientific Reports, and it's available to download open access. And when might people be able to download the app? We have one more experiment that we'd like to conduct just to make sure that people with very severe symptoms also get benefits from it. And hopefully after that, it will be released. Right. And you mentioned it has benefits compared to cognitive behavioral therapy, but what percentage of people responded to it compared to the people who would respond to CBT? Basically, everybody continued and used the app the whole time, which is very good because often there's a lot of dropout from the cognitive behavioral treatments or people can't even engage with them. So actually, we got quite beneficial effects very consistently across the different participants. It's really exciting to hear. Thank you very much, Barbara Sahakian from Cambridge University. And as you mentioned, that study just came out in Scientific Reports. Thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and Izzy Clark. 
Still to come, why do we have an influx of lazy fish? And the naked scientists hit a dance class as we look at the biology of a boogie. But before that, chances are you've used the internet today. Whether you're at work, doing some online banking, checking social media, or perhaps downloading the latest Naked Scientist podcast, you're connected to the online world. And if you're like me, perhaps you take it for granted that you'll be able to get online tonight, tomorrow, and even next week. But over half of everyone on the globe doesn't have this luxury, and the growth of people coming online has slowed down, according to a new report, with affordability cited as a major blockage to progress. So to talk about it more, we're joined by tech guru and angel investor Peter Cowley. So Peter, how is internet access currently spread across the world, and why is internet access important? Yes, it's spread, of course, as you'd expect in the developed world more. To give you some idea of the numbers, something like 98% of people online in Iceland, about 85 to 90% in Australia, South Africa, US, and 75% in Japan, but only 1.2% in Eritrea. So the actual access in sub-Saharan Africa is in the low digits. And the UN expected that to get to 100% by 2020. The moment it's still under 50%. The reason that these reports came out and they were talking about this is because it's actually slowing down. So it's only something like 6% a year. So the chance of it getting to 100% inside 30, 40 years is pretty impossible. Where internet access is actually classed as somebody having access once every three months. So compared with us, the people in the studio, for instance, or the people listening, that's a tiny fraction. And why is access important, though? Well, I think we all know that as listeners to this programme, there's all kinds of things that you can't really do nowadays without some sort of internet access, whether that's education, not all education, of course, but payments, booking tickets, etc. There is a study that actually deduced that for every 10% increase in internet access, it's linked to a 1.35% increase in GDP. So if you're turning developing countries into developed, internet access obviously contributes a tremendous amount. Why isn't everyone online? There are social things, certainly sub-Saharan Africa, which has been concentrated on these reports because women are not allowed to spend money on that. There's obviously a completely different dynamic between men and women in those countries. So having an asset isn't allowed. A lot of technological... The biggest issue, of course, is affordability. So the cost of putting a mobile infrastructure in place in order to give uh, access over the wireless, because you can't have copper, you can't add copper in the ground for these sort of countries, is that there isn't enough income coming in from those users to provide that. So what happens about that? Basically, it's got to be done with some sort of aid from other countries, which then leads to issues with other countries having control over these developing countries and all the political effects of that. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, what can be done? Is something happening to change all of that? Yeah, this, this assistance with things like regulation, with providing funding for submarine cables to some of these countries, etc. But there are two interesting technical projects here. One is called the Google Project Loon, which is a very thin balloon sitting above an area at about this sort of 20-kilometre point where they move around slowly but not too fast and they transmit from the ground up to the balloons and back down again. That's one project. And then, of course, Elon Musk is doing this with SpaceX. He's doing something and he's intending to put up many thousands of moving satellites which would float around the world at about 700 miles, 1,100 kilometres above Earth, all interconnected. So these two projects, of course, are being funded at the moment by the big tech giants, but in time will be taken over. And that will make a massive difference because, you know, half the population, 3.8 billion people are not yet connected. 
So how important is universal internet access then? Does everyone need to be online, essentially? Well, no. In fact, my, one of my children lives in Geneva and he's got a group of friends who refuse point blank to be online. <laughs> so they have smartphones without any data access. <laughs> they use just voice and text messages. If you think what's happening in terms of many things, you actually need you know, if you want to book an airline ticket with you know, one of the cheaper carriers, you've got to have internet access. It helps with payments, particularly in developing countries, which then helps with trade. It helps with people moving, say, vegetables and fruit around the place. There's a huge number of reasons why internet access is actually beneficial. It has downsides, of course, as well, as we know with fake news. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess very quickly, is internet access even affecting our behaviour? I know there have been things about negatively, but also positively. I imagine, like you said, if you can improve something like agriculture, then internet access would be incredibly important towards yeah, behaviour. payments, transactions, media consumption, if that matters. Social interaction, you know, for people in some places, it makes a massive, massive difference. News, education, the downsides are... Addiction, which does occur, fake news, attention span being shortened, physical human interaction became less important. Is that good for the globe? I'm not sure it is. And of course, lack of trust. That's the big one. People are not necessarily trusting uh, things that they meet on the internet. It will be interesting to see how that progresses. Thank you so much. That was Peter Cowley, who is an angel investor. Thank you. Speaking of uh, small attention spans, time to move to the next story. Anyone with hearing aids will be able to tell you that having a conversation in a busy restaurant is just about impossible. As hearing loss affects almost everyone at some point in their life, one Cambridge-based company has set out to solve what's termed the cocktail party problem. To find out more, I went to visit the chief executive of Audio Intelligence, that's Ken Roberts, to test out his technology in a slightly noisy pub. If you talk to people who wear hearing aids, you'll find very often that actually they'll turn them off in a noisy pub or even take them out because it actually is easier to try and focus in on a single person speaking than working with hearing aids that actually are really high-quality amplifiers, but they amplify all of the sounds that you don't want to listen to as well as the sound that you do. But we have come here armed with some very snazzy-looking, bleeping and flashing technology... What is your secret weapon? Basically what we have on the table here is a mini PC. On top of the mini PC is a small circuit board with eight microphones. It's roughly around the same size and shape as a mobile phone, which is intentional. Our software running on the mini PC actually uses the information from those eight microphones to figure out where the individual sources are in the acoustic scene around us. And by doing that, we can separate out the one that we're interested in and get rid of all the background noise that we're really not interested in. And that's really the difference between what we do and what a hearing aid does. A hearing aid actually amplifies all of that acoustic scene, but by doing that, it actually amplifies the background noise, uh, whereas we separate the source that you're interested in from the background noise. And how this works at the moment is with a little visualisation of the sound in the room on an iPhone. It looks like a donut with flashing lights where people are speaking. And if you want to focus on a particular person, you select the corresponding flashing light. And here's a comparison of Ken speaking first without and then with the technology being turned on. So we've only had all of that kind of subtracted from the acoustic scene. Uh, I'm going to have to turn it, it back on because <laughs> I can't hear from it. Right. Let's get it back on you. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a good example of the difference that the technology uh, delivers. Does it have any other applications? Yes, absolutely. So one of the biggest growth areas in the world today is home assistance and speech recognition. And one of the big challenges that automated speech recognition software has 
is being fed a clean signal. About 30% of errors that speech recognition software has are due to noisy signals. So by inserting our technology ahead of your speech processor, we can feed a clean denoised signal. So again, just like the environment here, we could get rid of all the background noise and greatly improve the recognition rates for speech recognition technologies. That was Ken Roberts from Audio Intelligence there. And finally, in 2016, there was an unexpected and unprecedented mass bleaching of the world's coral reefs due to rising sea temperatures, which caused many of them to die. Coincidentally, at this time, a team of researchers were in the process of studying butterfly fish who are sensitive to changes in the reef. The timing meant that they were able to determine the effect of coral bleaching on these reef inhabitants. Tamsin Bell spoke with Dr Sally Keith from Lancaster University who led the research and who started by explaining the process of coral bleaching. The water gets too hot and the corals expel the algae that live inside them and this is what makes them turn a white colour. So it's called bleaching because the corals go white. And this doesn't mean they're dead at that point, so sometimes they can recover if the temperatures are not high for too long, but unfortunately sometimes it can also cause them to die. And this one in 2016 was the biggest one in recorded history, and we had very high coral death after that event. What we wanted to look at was specifically butterfly fishes. They're very brightly coloured fish that eat corals, so they're very, very dependent on the health of the reef. And we wanted to understand how their behaviour was changing in response to environmental change. How have you been studying these fish? I've spent a lot of time underwater the last few years watching fish, about 600 hours across 17 different reefs in the central Indo-Pacific region. We're generally on snorkel with a clipboard and a bit of waterproof paper and a pencil. And we watch a fish for five minutes and we record any other fish that are also butterfly fish that come within one meter of it and at that point we say that there's been an encounter and we got a total of 5,259 encounters recorded between individuals and that was across 38 different species of fish. Now that encounter can go one of two ways either they don't care that the other one's there so it's passive there's no response or they can get very very angry and chase the other individual away And so that indicates aggression. And the reason they do that is because they're defending their corals that they want to eat in their territory from this other individual. I see. So from all this work you've done, what have you found? Before the bleaching happened, when we were watching these fish, 15% of their interactions were aggressive. So fairly often they ended up chasing each other when they came into contact. But after the bleaching, we had a two-thirds decrease in aggression. So it was only every one in 20 times they met each other that they chased. And what we think has happened is that because the most nutritious corals have gone first, they've gone past the point of being hangry. So originally, when when the resource starts to reduce, they get more aggressive. They've gone past that point now where there's so little for them to eat, that they just don't have the energy to invest in fighting. Oh, wow, so they just can't be bothered. Exactly. <laughs> so what implications does this have? It's really demonstrating uh, a sort of intermediate mechanism. So we know that after about five years or seven years after bleaching, we tend to have fewer 
fish individuals on a reef, but we don't really know the process of how that happens. And so it seems like this change in behaviour might indicate to us what's going on. And so if they don't have the energy to invest in fighting, and that's because they're eating a less nutritious diet, it means either they might end up starving over time because they've got enough food to keep going for a little while, but not to keep surviving in the long term. The other possibility is that although they've got enough energy to survive themselves, they don't have enough energy to produce the next generation of fish. And because these fish have quite a short lifespan, that might explain why we have this time lag. So it's really trying to get at the underlying mechanism that's driving the ultimate reduction in fish numbers. That was Sally Keith from Lancaster University speaking with Tamsin Bell and the butterfly fish research has just been published in Nature Climate Change. And if you'd like to find out more about that or any of the stories we've covered this week, all the transcripts and the papers can be found on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Izzy Clark. And this week, we're getting on our dancing shoes. It's the science of samba and the chemistry of a conga line. We'll be finding out how dancing can keep you healthy in both mind and body, why humans like to dance in the first place. Plus, we'll be hearing how Izzy got on at a dancing lesson. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, I'm not sure if I'm ready for it. It's all well and good for those on Strictly Come Dancing or Dancing with the Stars who have a professional dancer helping them with every step of the way. But are there some universal dancing rules that make something look good? What is it that makes someone an appealing dancer? Adam Murphy spoke to Nick Neve from Northumbria University to learn about looking good on the dance floor. We took a sample of males, um, we asked for volunteers, we didn't ask for people who were professional dancers, we just wanted kind of normal guys off the street. We were very interested in having people look at these videos of people dancing and not be distracted by anything else. Previous research that had been done on male movements had kind of used blurred images of people and we realised that those images were still giving off information that might be distracting. So, you know, for example, you could tell the size of the body, the shape of the body, the skin colour, how tall the person was. Uh, And we know that those things are very important for mate perception. So we wanted to remove all those things. So in our methodology, we videoed people in a motion capture system. They were kind of wearing shorts and a T-shirt and you stick these little reflective markers on them, which actually don't hinder their movement at all. The cameras don't actually see the person. All they see is these little markers that turns these people into kind of moving blobs of light. With some fancy software, we then recreate the people as computer-generated avatars. And very importantly, those avatars are all exactly the same. So what do these avatars look like? Could you describe them for me? Yeah, well, you know, they're standard little computer-generated figures, kind of shiny robots, if you like. They're humanoid, like an action man-type figure. 
but it's very interesting that they are incredibly realistic in terms of the movement. So when a person moves in real life, that movement is translated across into the avatars. And of course, because the computer knows where all of these anatomical markers are, it means that we can then calculate very, very precise biomechanical differences. So we can calculate movement angles, movement trajectories, movement velocities, all of these things that we can measure to kind of come up with a way of measuring a person's movement. And what kind of things did you find at the other end? What we essentially found was that the quality of a male's dance was very strongly associated with the movements of his upper body. So kind of shoulders, arms, head, neck, chest, those things seem to be what people focus on when they're looking at male dancers. That was kind of surprising. We thought that there'd be a lot of leg action there, that people would be very focused upon legs and how fast the legs are moving, but that didn't seem to be the case. Women and men are focusing on men's upper bodies. We then did some further research where we got our volunteers and we measured how strong they were. We used things like grip strength, dynamometer test and lo and behold what we found was that the the strength of the male was accurately signified by their dance quality so stronger men were rated as being better dancers you said um upper body movements were important what kind of upper body movements what looks good yeah it it is odd because it you know if you think what we say that these movements are very kind of vigorous movements and very big movements and very kind of strong and powerful movements but the guy that just stands there and kind of flings his arms around in in kind of wild abandon that's kind of crazy the males who were making bigger and stronger and faster and more powerful movements with their arms and upper body they were preferred But after a certain point, that gets to be not preferred. There's a very fine line between being regarded as a poor dancer and being regarded as a good dancer. And then if you try too hard, you then become a kind of a bad dancer again. Is it moving the arms the same or up or down or what what is it that looks best? In that initial study we weren't able to tell. We just seemed mm. we just found that the kind of strength and that the size and the speed of the movement seemed to be important. We then did a second study because we realized that there was bits here that we kind of didn't fully understand. This time we recruited females. Um we did exactly the same thing and what we found in this case was that for female dancers that upper body was completely unimportant it was all about the legs and the hips specifically the movements of the hips and what we did find in the female dancers was that there was a degree of asymmetry which seemed to be very important so for example if the left leg is doing something the right leg should be doing something slightly different but the kind of optimum dance seems to be where the legs and the arms are working independently from one another but are still working together we think that this kind of demonstrates um the kind of ideal physical state in that somebody who can do something with their left arm and their left leg and something slightly different with their right arm and right leg that seems to indicate a very good level of coordination uh, perhaps creativity efficiency of the motor system that's what we think these honor signals are are kind of underlying these movements if someone felt they were a total no hoper when it came to dance what advice would you give them it's very simple actually um what we found is and we've spoke to a lot of choreographers we've spoke to a lot of professional dancers and 
it seems to be that the root of good dance is all about having a core strength in your body. So a person who hasn't got that strength isn't going to be a good dancer at all. So start off with you know things like yoga classes, Pilates classes, develop that core body strength. And then by taking dance classes, you can very, very quickly develop rhythm and timing and you can learn to do these things properly now you know they'll never win strictly but they will be able to achieve a very good level of dance and there you have it if you want to get better hit the yoga mat and a dance class or two if you're totally helpless that was nick neve from northumbria university we've just found out what looks good when we're watching dancers but why do we bother doing it in the first place where did it come from and how linked is it to music well here in the studio to fill us in on the evolution of dance is ian cross he's professor of music at cambridge university hi ian so why did dance evolve in the first place why do we do it probably for the same reason that language evolved to enable us to engage with each other and primarily to engage with each other socially do we know when it came no we really don't well, it's unlikely to have happened before we became particularly bipedal, so it's going to be post-Australopithecine. But I do like the idea of, uh, of apes in trees sort of jigging around. Well, interesting, you should say that. Until oh, a couple of years ago, I, would, I didn't really believe any of the evidence that suggested that chimpanzees could keep in time with each other. Until I saw some material from the Kyoto Primate Lab in Japan, which showed pretty unambiguously that chimps can tap along in time with each other. In other words, chimps could do something like dance with each other, but only if they're good mates or they're related Right, they don't want to dance with strangers no. then, just uh, like most of us. And that's probably the difference between them and us, that we can dance with strangers. There's some very interesting ethnographic evidence. For instance, when the first fleet landed in uh, Botany Bay in Australia in 1788, uh, sorry, invaded Australia, more or less the first thing that happened was that some of the sailors danced with some of the indigenous peoples. Right, OK. And you mentioned we think that dance evolved because of a social thing. Is there anything else it might be good for? And have, has anyone done any studies into this? We did a study hmm, about three or four years ago where we looked at people dancing together and the effect that that had on memory. We used silent disco technology to enable us to have two groups of people dancing in the same space but to different pieces of music. Silent disco technology, if for those who don't know, is wireless headphones with a bass station. The bass station can broadcast the music, and you've usually got two or three or maybe half a dozen different channels in the bass station. We used two different channels, two different pieces of music, so half the people were dancing to one piece and half were dancing to a different piece at a different tempo, a different speed. Right, and what effect did that have on people's memory, did you say? Well, what we did was control the ways in which they could interact with each other, so everyone spent as much time in proximity to people dancing at the same tempo as dancing at the different tempo. People were wearing different coloured sashes and half of them were wearing badges. What we found was that people remembered the colour of the sashes that people dancing to the same tempo were wearing and remembered whether or not people dancing to the same tempo were wearing badges but didn't remember nearly so well when they were dancing to a different tempo. Right, so dancing might actually help us remember things about the people we're dancing with. Why would that be a good thing, evolutionary speaking? Well, what you're remembering are incidental features, features that are not focally attended to. It's pretty good just to check out, can I cope with this person? Can I engage with this person? 
will I be able to communicate with this person? And if you add another layer to it, then, of course, the whole sex thing comes into it. But we're talking about a level here way below that, which is just general sociality. I see. So you're having a nice dance with someone, maybe had a bit to drink and you dance really well with them. But then who were they? And then you remember what colour sash they had on. (laughs) That could be one of it. One aspect. Um, Some other research has shown that we're more likely to like people we have been in time with than people we've been out of time with. I guess that's similar to how they make um, people do marching together for armies and things. It's very important, isn't it? Yeah, it it is a process of um, bonding at that level. To distinguish between music and dance becomes a bit silly because in most world cultures, they're the same thing. I was going to ask about that because music is another thing we're very, it's very mm. linked with dancing. Mm. And you say that they're sort of the same in many cultures. Oh, absolutely. And in many respects, the same in this culture. In Nigeria, for instance, Nibo, what we might think of as music is Nkwa, which is music, singing, dancing and having a good time. Right, so they're all one word. Yeah. It's a lovely word. It is, and it's actually a much more sensible word than music, which kind of partitions out an area of human experience, or dance, which again partitions out another area, which are closely linked. Do we know what happens in the brain when a great tune comes on and your foot starts tapping away and you just want to have a boogie? What's going on inside our minds to cause this reaction? One of the interesting things that happens when we hear music is that the bit of the brain that's involved in planning for action, the supplementary motor area, there's activation. A meta-analysis of all the studies that have looked at at people just listening to music in a scanner showed that one area that was consistently activated was the supplementary motor area. So you could say that a response to listening to music is to prepare to move. Thank you, Ian. So I guess instead of blaming it on the boogie, you should blame it on evolution for our love of dancing. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Izzy Clark, and with Georgia Mills. On the way, how can dance be used to help ageing populations? And we delve deep into the science of wombat poo. But first up, what actually goes on in the body when we're dancing? How easy is it? And it's probably a pretty uncontroversial statement to say that dancers are fit. But how fit are they? To find out more, Adam Murphy and I put ourselves to the test with Emma Redding, Professor of Dance Science at Trinity Laban Conservatory of Music and Dance. There are huge demands placed on dancers in terms of physiological demands. If you just look at how they take their bodies to huge extremes, so in terms of joint range of motion, they really do need to get their legs up. I mean, probably I would say dancers need to be more flexible than pretty much any other athlete. But if you look at their upper body strength and some of their cardiorespiratory fitness sort of areas, then dancers, they're, they're less fit than many of their counterparts. Many sports athletes are actually fitter than dancers. But that's not because they don't need to be fit. That's just because the training needs to really support that fitness for the way in which choreographic demands are changing all the time. So do dancers experience injuries at roughly the same rate as other athletes? Dancers get injured a lot. So research has shown that 80% of dancers get injured in any 12-month period of time. That's an injury that takes them out of participation. 80% of dancers, that's a a lot of dancers. And if you apply the same definition of injury and the same type of research to sports athletes, you'll find that dancers actually get injured more than many other sports athletes, including rugby players, you know, and they're killing each other. But actually, they get injured less, perhaps more catastrophic, but they get injured less than dancers. 
So it's interesting, and I think that you know that one of the biggest causes of injury is fatigue and overwork. So that means we can do something about all those injuries in dance. Look at the training programs, apply some science, and actually try and prevent those injuries. But what does this application of science look like? Well, this is the hand grip dynamometer. This is an isometric measure of strength. So we're looking at particularly the forearm here and the wrist. That's Scott Sinclair, lab technician for Trinity Laban's Dance Science Department, who had a test of strength for fellow naked scientist Izzy Clark. This is important, particularly within music and dance. One for musicians because they're holding instruments for quite a long period of time. So if they've got an imbalance in their muscle weakness, they're more susceptible to injuries. Exact same principle as dancers. They're working with the floor, they're working with partners. So if they have a weakness or an instability, you know, again, that could lead to injury as well. Okay, so, well, I'm so weak. I already know that. It's going to be so bad. You just want to hold it like this position and squeeze as hard as you can for three seconds. Okay. Okay, right, deep breath. Ready? Three, two, one, squeeze. Go, 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 one, two, three, and relax. Oh gosh, I don't even know what that was. So three zero. So it's measured in kgs. The most important bit really is actually just keeping it individual to you rather than you comparing you to populations, for example. So that is all very helpful for dancers. But what about those of us who still struggle to clap in time? Back to Emma Redding. Well, one of the big things we're trying to do here at Trinity Laban in dance science is to measure the impact of dance on the health and well-being of other populations. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence, really, in the, in the press, in magazines and, you know, on TV about what dance can do. And dance is certainly more popular than ever before. More people are doing dance than watching dance, funnily enough. And, and why is that? What is it doing for them? And that's what we're trying to sort of measure. We know that dance can get you fitter. So if it's seen as a physical activity just like any sport, then it can potentially conquer various diseases like obesity, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, etc. What else can dance do? We, we measure the psychological impact of dance, and we found with some of the research projects we've done, we found that, for example, older people can increase their self-esteem, their uh, sense of identity and purpose and meaning in life through dance participation. Do you have any theories as to why that does that? Yes, Dance is not just a physical activity, it's a social activity whereby people are touching each other, they are interacting with each other, trying physically and cognitively to solve those problems together. So I think it's the the social, the cognitive and the physical aspects of dance that makes dance a very unique activity and can produce the benefits that go way beyond sport. We decided to put this to the test and went for a dance class with Emma who was more than happy to put us through our paces with a simple contemporary routine. Although how simple it actually was is up for some debate. I obviously can't tell my left and my right apart. We do one left, one right, I'm like, got it. Change direction, I'm like, I don't got it. And at the end of the somewhat successful class, had Emma proved us right? Were there real psychological benefits? 
I can see you're smiling. So I think it's fair to say that, yes, there are lots of psychological benefits. I can see them now. And I mean, what's happening essentially is those exercise endorphins that are released when you do any physical activity, they are being released right now. So you're feeling good about yourself, feeling happy. Everyone seems to walk out of a dance class with a smile on their face. Are there any particular groups of people who benefit most from getting involved in dance? No, I would say all types of people, no matter who you are, what you come with, you can benefit from dance. Every individual that has participated in dance, at least at Trinity Laban, has benefited in some way. And we do work with older people, we do work with people who have acquired brain injury, younger people with learning differences, people with physical difficulties. We have people in wheelchairs coming in with their carers. And it's really important for us as well to work not only with the, the people who have those differences, but their carers, their physiotherapists, occupational therapists, so that they can go out of, of the building and actually continue to, to be creative physically with the people looking after them as well. So Izzy Clark, I believe it is a master's in physics you hold and you don't know the difference between left and right. That's a shocker. I was absolutely hopeless. I Going into it, I sort of backed myself. I thought I'd be okay. My parents are musicians. I've got rhythm, but no, it just didn't help at all. I got quite in a, in a tiz. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can't be good at everything. But anyway, as we just heard, dance can be a great help to many people, including the elderly. But what do programmes like this look like and what kind of help do they offer? At Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, the Dance for Health programme does just that. Deborah Quartermain is the Falls Prevention Coordinator and the Coordinator for the Dance for Health programme in Addenbrooke's Hospital, and she joins us now in the studio. Welcome, Deborah. How did the idea for the Dance for Health programme come about? So I am a dancer by background as well as a nurse and in 2013 I had a conversation with our arts department to see whether we could bring dance into the hospital for patients. There's a lot in the community but not within a hospital setting. So our charitable trust funded us a pilot programme which was incredibly successful and it's carried on from there. And back in 2017, we were lucky enough to get two years funding from the Dunhill Medical Trust. And part of that was to do research on the programme as well. So we're nearing the end of that. But it's gone down very well and has had some very positive results. Can you talk me through what a typical session might look like then? So there is never really a typical session. So to bear with, we are actually dealing with very sick patients here. So it's very patient-led. We have a skeletal structure which is a warm-up and then improvisation and then a relaxation session at the end of it. But it very much depends on the patients that come in, what their abilities are and what they would like to do. I see. Is there a, are there any sort of moves that you could uh, teach us now in the studio? So we do start off with trying to ground people by making sure they've got their feet both on the floor if they can. Oh, and just that. put your hands on your uh, thighs and just literally very slowly moving your hands up and down your thighs. Okay. I feel like Vic Reeves here. <laughs> and that sounds very strange, but we're looking at people's proprioception. So do they know where their hands are? Do they know where their legs are? Right, so and is that a good indicator of their well-being? Well, it's an indicator that they know where the position of their body is. So if I was to blindfold you, you would know where your hands are. You would know whether they were above your head or hanging down by the side. Some people, if they have a neurological disorder, don't know that. So we're trying to judge what we need to work with with those patients. 
I see. And is that um, is it also an advantage? Some people will be less mobile, so you don't need to do a conga line. You can do it from a seating position. Yes, a lot of ours is seated. We can stand up. But sometimes we are working with getting patients to stand, and that will often take two of us to do that and then get them to dance while they're standing up. There is never one session the same. It's incredibly interesting to walk in. And the one thing that we do um, always say is we don't want to know what the diagnosis of the patient is. We are purely working from looking at their body and listening to them. And why, why dance instead of just the regular physio? Physio is very prescriptive. So, you know, you need to bend this arm 10 times. And it's quite boring. How many of us really like to go to the gym? No, not me. (laughs) Straight away. So, and obviously we're at the moment dealing with the elderly. So it's an age group that are very used to dancing. They often met their partners at dance halls, spent Saturday nights at dance halls. They don't see it as a form of exercise. They see it as a form of enjoyment. And you mentioned you're researching the effectiveness. So what have you found so far? How effective has it been? Part of the research that's been going on is looking at well-being and preliminary results from that is showing that over 70% of the patients who attend the sessions have an improvement of their well-being from the beginning to the end of the sessions. Right, so that's quite positive. And then individually, have people been reporting they've found benefits? So we have. We had a very... um, interesting case not long ago where we had a gentleman who'd been in hospital for quite a number of months and who'd basically given up. He wouldn't engage in physiotherapy. He wasn't getting out of bed. He wasn't eating very well. And he was heading towards a nursing home, which would have split him up from his wife. We managed to get him into the session. He started to engage. After a couple of weeks, he was bringing in his playlist of music that he wanted. (laughs) He was then starting to ask when his physiotherapy sessions were. And we kept working with him together with the physiotherapists, doing their bits as well. And we got him home. Wow, that's fantastic. The power of dance. So are people in general, when they hear they're going to be dancing around, are they excited or are they a bit sceptical at first? We've had to sort of use the word movement rather than dance with a lot of people because (laughs) they have a vision of strictly getting up and having to learn steps. and Wearing a sequined suit. Yeah, and that's definitely not what it's about. It's things like we had a gentleman and his wife was in visiting and they used to ballroom dance, but they hadn't actually been able to dance for over six months because he could no longer stand. We managed to get him up and put a piece of lovely waltz music on and allow him to dance with his wife. Two of us supported him while he held his wife and danced with her. And I think that was worth a million pounds to see that. Wow, that's beautiful. And are there any other programmes like this? No, this is unique. There are dance programmes where performers go into hospitals and do performances, but our programme is not around that. So it's a very unique programme. There's no other hospital in the UK doing it. We don't think there's any other hospital in the world doing it. Right. And so what is next then? Spread the good word, I guess. Well, we're now looking for more funding. Um, we'd like to extend the programme. We'd like to continue with what we're doing, but extended. We'd like to work with different groups of patients. So orthopaedics, transplant, all those sorts of things. Wish you luck with it. Thank you very much, Deborah. That's Deborah Quartermain. She's the coordinator for the Dance for Health programme at Addenbrooke Hospital in Cambridge. And thanks to all of our dancers from this week. That's Ian Cross, Nick Neve and Emma Redding. 
And now we've learned why we dance, how good it is and what makes a good looking dancer. The only thing left to do is take all of these skills, take them down to your nearest dance floor and wow the world with your scientific shimmying. And we won't take any responsibility for any sprained limbs or falling over that may occur as a result of this. Or slightly crashing into someone because you can't tell left and right apart. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure our listeners can, is he? I think that's just you. And now it's time to finish the programme with Question of the week this week tamsin bell's been getting stuck into this one from andrew how do wombats produce cube shaped droppings poo comes in many shapes and sizes we are used to seeing it on the street or accidentally stepping in different forms including tubes from dogs pellets from rabbits or big splats from cows but i've never come across a cubic poo we asked dr louise gentle from nottingham trent university to help us out with this stinker The wombat is unique in the animal kingdom because it produces cube-shaped poo and lots of it, around 80 to 100 cubes per night. Now, the wombat is a nocturnal animal with poor eyesight but an excellent sense of smell. It is highly territorial, so uses its cube-shaped poo to mark its territory and prevent conflict. Wombats deposit poo outside their burrows and on top of rocks and logs, where they're more easily found by other wombats. So, wombats use poo as the main way of telling who lives where, if there are any unknown wombats in the area, and also as a way of increasing its reproductive success. So now we have an idea of why wombats produce a lot of cubic poo. But how is it actually produced? Well, wombat poo is cubic, not because the wombat has a square-shaped anus, but because it has a very long and slow digestive process, typically two to three weeks, which makes the digestive matter extremely compacted and dry. Whoa, two to three weeks, they must feel bloated all the time. Wombats have the driest poos compared to other mammals or marsupials, and these poos contain really, really fine grass particles, the main part of their diet. The first part of their long digestive tract contains ridges that mould the faeces into cubes, whereas the last part of the intestines is relatively smooth, allowing the cubic shape to be maintained. The ridges in the digestive tract may cause weaknesses in the poo, which make it susceptible to breaking into smaller cubes. The highly compacted nature of the poo means that the anus is unable to contour it into the usual tubular shapes, so it stays in the shape of the cubes that were formed at the start. Basically, the wombat produces hard cubic poo as a result of its diet and long digestion. Most poo is moist, so sticks where it is deposited, but the distinctive cube shape is thought to be advantageous to the wombat as it stops the hard, dry poo from rolling away down the steep mountains that the wombat inhabits. Wow, that is a very clever adaptation. Thank you, Louise, for pooting the lid on that one. Next time, we are considering this time-travelling question from Stuart. If you could bring a baby from the past to grow up in the present, How far back could you go before people would notice that this was a time-travelling baby? What do you think? I love that question. You can email Chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist, and better late than never, we are also on Instagram at Naked Scientist, or you can join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Adam Murphy, who put the programme together. Do join us next week when we'll be putting your questions to our panel of scientists with another Q&A show. If you've got a question, you can put it to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll try and answer it in the show. 
The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.